0: The Poet, Chapters One, Two, and Three of Joseph Conrad by Hugh Walpole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Poet, Chapter One. The poet in Conrad is lyrical as well as philosophic. The lyrical side is absent in certain of his works, as, for example, The Secret Agent and Under Western Eyes, or such short stories as The Informer or Il Conde but the philosophic note sounded poetically as an instrument of music as well as a philosophy is never absent three elements in the work of conrad the poet as distinct from conrad the novelist deserve consideration style atmosphere and philosophy in the matter of style the first point that must strike any constant reader of the novels is the change that is to be marked between the earlier works and the later here is a descriptive passage from conrad's second novel an outcast of the islands he followed her step by step till at last they both stopped facing each other under the big tree of the enclosure the solitary exile of the forests great motionless and solemn in his abandonment left alone by the life of ages that had been pushed away from him by those pygmies that crept at his foot towered high and straight above their leader. He seemed to look on, dispassionate and imposing in his lonely greatness, spreading his branches wide in a gesture of lofty protection, as if to hide them in the sombre shelter of innumerable leaves, as if moved by the disdainful compassion of the strong, by the scornful pity of an aged giant, to screen this struggle of two human hearts from the cold scrutiny of glittering stars." and from his latest novel chance the very sea with short flashes of foam bursting out here and there in the gloomy distances the unchangeable safe sea sheltering a man from all passions except its own anger seemed queer to the quick glance he threw to windward when the already effaced horizon traced no reassuring limit to the eye in the expiring diffused twilight and before the clouded night dropped its mysterious veil it was the immensity of space made visible almost palpable young powell felt it he felt it in the sudden sense of his isolation the trustworthy powerful ship of his first acquaintance reduced to a speck to something almost undistinguishable THE MERE SUPPORT FOR THE SOLES OF HIS TWO FEET BEFORE THAT UNEXPECTED OLD MAN BECOMING SO SUDDENLY ARTICULATE IN A DARKENING UNIVERSE. IT MUST BE REMEMBERED THAT THE SECOND OF THESE QUOTATIONS IS THE VOICE OF Marlowe, AND THAT THEREFORE IT SHOULD, IN NECESSITY, BE THE SIMPLER OF THE TWO. NEVERTHELESS THE DISTINCTION CAN VERY CLEARLY BE OBSERVED the first piece of prose is quite definitely lyrical it has it cannot be denied something of the purple patch we feel that the prose is too dependent upon sonorous adjectives that it has the deliberation of work slightly affected by the author's determination that it shall be fine the rhythm in it however is as deliberate as the rhythm of any poem in english the picture evoked as distinct and clear-cut as though it were in actual fact a poem detached from all context and finally there is the inevitable philosophical implication to give the argument to the picture such passages of descriptive prose may be found again and again in the earlier novels and tales of conrad in almayer's folly tales of unrest the nigger of the narcissus typhoon youth heart of darkness lord jim prose piled high with sonorous and slow-moving adjectives three adjectives to a noun prose that sounds like an eastern invocation to a deity in whom nevertheless the suppliant does not believe at its worst the strain that its sonority places upon movements and objects of no importance is disastrous for instance in the tale called the return there is the following passage he saw her shoulder touch the lintel of the door she swayed as if dazed there was less than a second of suspense while they both felt as if poised on the very edge of moral annihilation ready to fall into some devouring nowhere then almost simultaneously he shouted come back and she let go the handle of the door she turned round in peaceful desperation like one who has deliberately thrown away the last chance of life and for a moment the room she faced appeared terrible and dark and safe, like a grave. The situation here simply will not bear the weight of the words— moral annihilation, devouring nowhere, peaceful desperation, last chance of life, terrible, like a grave. That he shouted gives a final touch of ludicrous exaggeration to the whole passage. Often, in the earlier books, Conrad's style has the awkward overemphasis of a writer who is still acquiring the language that he is using, like a foreigner who shouts to us because he thinks that thus we shall understand him more easily. But there is also, in this earlier style, the marked effect of two influences. One influence is that of the French language, and especially of the author of Madame Bovary when we recollect that conrad hesitated at the beginning of his career as to whether he would write in french or english we can understand this french inflection flaubert's effect on his style is quite unmistakable this is a sentence of flaubert's toutes ces variéties de denigrement l'envanessent sous la poésie du rôle qui Et entraine vers l'homme par l'usion du personnage, elle tacha de sa figura sa vie, cette vie retentissante, extraordinaire, splendide. And this is a sentence of Conrad's. Her hands slipped slowly off Lingard's shoulders, and her arms fell by her side, listless, discouraged, as if to her to her the savage violent and ignorant creature had been revealed clearly in that moment the tremendous fact of our isolation of the loneliness impenetrable and transparent elusive and everlasting conrad's sentence reads like a direct translation from the french It is probable, however, that his debt to Flaubert and the French language can be very easily exaggerated, and it does not seem, in any case, to have driven very deeply into the heart of his form. The influence is mainly to be detected in the arrangement of words and sentences, as though he had, in the first year of his work, used it as a crutch before he could walk alone the second of the early influences upon his style is of far greater importance the influence of the vast unfettered elements of nature that he had for so many years so directly served if it were not for his remarkable creative gift that had been from the very first at its full strength his early books would stand as purely lyrical evocations of the sea and the forest it is the poetry of the old testament of which we think in many pages of almayer's folly and an outcast of the islands a poetry that has the rhythm and metre of a spontaneous emotion he was never again to catch quite the spirit of that first rapture he was under the influence of these powers also in that at that time they were too strong for him we feel with him that he is impotent to express his wonder and praise because he is still so immediately under their sway his style in these earlier books has the repetition and extended phrase of a man who is marking time before the inspired moment comes to him Often the inspiration does not come because he cannot detach himself with sufficient pause and balance. But in his middle period, in the period of Youth, Typhoon, Heart of Darkness, and Nostromo, this lyrical impulse can be seen at its perfection, beating steadily, spontaneously, with the finest freedom, and yet disciplined, as it were, by its own will and desire compare for a moment this passage from typhoon with that earlier one from the outcast of the islands that i quoted above he watched her battered and solitary labouring heavily in a wild scene of mountainous black waters lit by the gleam of distant worlds she moved slowly breathing into the still core of the hurricane the excess of her strength in a white cloud of steam and the deep-toned vibration of the escape was like the defiant trumpeting of a living creature of the sea impatient for the renewal of the contest it ceased suddenly the still air moaned above jake's head a few stars shone into the pit of black vapours the inky edge of the cloud disk frowned upon the ship under the patch of glittering sky the stars too seemed to look at her intently as if for the last time and the cluster of their splendour sat like a diadem on a lowering brow." That is poet's work, and poet's work at its finest. Instead of impressing us, as the earlier piece of prose, with the fact that the author has made the very most of a rather thin moment, feels indeed himself that it is thin, we are here under the influence of something that can have no limits to the splendours that it contains. The work is thick, as though it had been wrought by the finest workman out of the heart of the finest material, and yet it remains, through all its discipline, spontaneous. These three tales, Typhoon, Youth, and Heart of Darkness, stand by themselves as the final expression of Conrad's lyrical gift— We may remember such characters as McQuirr, Kurtz, Marlowe, but they are figures as the old Seneschal in The Eve of St. Agnes, or the ancient Mariner himself are figures. They are as surely complete poems, wrought and finished in the true spirit of poetry, as Whitman's When Lilac First in the Dooryard Bloomed, or Keats's Nightingale their author was never again to succeed so completely in combining the free spirit of his enthusiasm with the disciplined restraint of the true artist the third period of his style shows him cool and clear-headed as to the things that he intends to do he is now the slightly ironic artist whose business is to get things onto paper in the clearest possible way he is conscious that in the past he has been at the mercy of sonorous and high-sounding adjectives he will use them still but only to show them that they are at his mercy marlowe his appointed minister is older he must look back now on the colours of youth with an indulgent smile and when marlowe is absent in such novels as the secret agent and under western eyes in such a volume of stories as a set of six The lyrical beat in the style is utterly abandoned. We are led forward by sentences as grave, as assured, and sometimes as ponderous as a city policeman. Nevertheless, in that passage from Chance, quoted at the beginning of the chapter, although we may be far from the undisciplined enthusiasm of an outcast of the islands, the lyrical impulse still remains. Yes, it is there, but young Powell felt it in that magical storm that was typhoon god alone can share our terror and demand our courage in the later experience young powell is our companion the poet chapter two the question of style devolves here directly into the question of atmosphere there may roughly be said to be four classes of novelists in the matter of atmosphere there is the novelist who intent upon his daily bread or game of golf has no desire to be worried by such a perplexing business he produces stories that might without loss play the whole of their action in the waiting-room of an english railway station there is the novelist who thinks that atmosphere matters immensely who works hard to produce it and does produce it in thick slabs there are the novelists whose theme character and background react so admirably that the atmosphere is provided simply by that reaction and there finally it is left put into no relation with other atmospheres serving no further purpose than the immediate one of stating the facts of this school are the realists and in our own day mr arnold bennett's brighton background in hilda laswesor mrs wharton's new york background in the house of mirth offer most successful examples of such realistic work the fourth class provides us with the novelists who wish to place their atmosphere in relation with the rest of life our imagination is awakened insensibly by the contemplation of some scene and is thence extended to the whole vista of life from birth to death although the scene may actually be as remote or as confined as space can make it its potential limits are boundless its progression is extended beyond all possibilities of definition such a moment is the death of Bazarov in *Fathers and Children*, the searching of Dmitri in *The Brothers Karamazov*, the scene at the theatre in *The Ring and the Book*, the London meeting between Beecham and Rene in *Beecham's Career*. It is not only that these scenes are done to the full extent of their doing; it is also that they have behind them the lyrical impulse that unites them with all the emotion and beauty in the history of the world. Turgenev, Dostoevsky, Browning, Meredith were amongst the greatest of the poets. Conrad, at his highest moments, is also of that company. But it is not enough to say that this potential atmosphere is simply lyrical. Mr. Chesterton, in his breathless Victorian age in literature, has named this element glamour. In writing of the novels by George Eliot he says, "'Indeed there is almost every element of literature except a certain indescribable thing called glamour, which was the whole stock and trade of the Brontes, which we feel in Dickens when Quilp clambers amid rotten wood by the desolate river, and even in Thackeray when Edmund wanders like some swarthy crow about the dismal avenues of Castlewood.' now this matter of glamour is not all because dickens for instance is not at all potential his pictures of quilp or the house of the deadlocks or jonas chuzzlewit's escape after the murder do not put us into touch with other worlds but we may say at any rate that when in a novel atmosphere is potential it is certain also to have glamour the potential qualities of conrad's atmosphere are amongst his very strongest gifts and if we investigate the matter we see that it is his union of romance and realism that gives such results of almost no important scene in his novels is it possible to define the boundaries in the outcast of the islands when willems is exiled by captain lingard the terror of that forest has at its heart not only the actual terror of that immediate scene minutely and realistically described it has also the terror of all our knowledge of loneliness desolation the power of something stronger than ourselves in lord jim the contrast of jim with the officers of the patna is a contrast not only immediately vital and realised to the very fringe of the captain's gay and soiled pyjamas but also potential to the very limits of our ultimate conception of the eternal contrast between good and evil degradation and vigour ugliness and beauty in the nigger of the narcissus the death of the negro james waite immediately affects the lives of a number of very ordinary human beings whose friends and intimates we have become but that shadow that traps the feet of the negro that alarms the souls of donkin of belfast of singleton of the boy Charlie, creeps also to our sides and envelops for us far more than that single voyage of the narcissus when Winnie Verloc, her old mother, and the boy Stevie take their journey in the cab, it does not seem ludicrous to us that the tears of that large female in a dark, dusty wig and ancient silk dress, festooned with dingy white cotton lace, should move us as though Mrs. Verloc were our nearest friend. That mournful but courageous journey— remains in our mind as an intimate companion of our own mournful and courageous experiences such examples might be multiplied quite indefinitely He has always secured his atmosphere, by his own eager curiosity, about significant detail, but his detail is significant not because he wishes to impress his reader with the realism of his picture, but rather because he is, like a very small boy in a strange house, pursuing the most romantic adventures for his own pleasure and excitement only we may hear with many novelists the click of satisfaction with which they drive another nail into the framework that supports their picture now see how firmly it stands they say that last nail settled it but conrad is utterly unconscious as to his reader's later credulity he is too completely held by his own amazing discoveries sometimes as in the return when no vision is granted to him it is as though he were banging on a brass tray with all his strength so that no one should perceive his own grievous disappointment at his failure but in his real discoveries how the atmosphere piles itself up around and about him how we follow at his heels penetrating the darkness trusting to his courage finding ourselves suddenly blinded by the blaze of aladdin's cave if he is tracing the tragedy of Willems and Almayer—a tragedy that has for its natural background the gorgeous heavy splendour of those unending forests—he sees details that belong to the austerest and most sharply disciplined realism. We see Lakamba asleep under the moon, slapping himself in his dreams to keep off the mosquitoes a bluebottle comes buzzing into the veranda above the dirty plates of a half-finished meal and defies lingard and almayer so that they are like men disheartened by some tremendous failure the cards with which lingard tries to build a house for almayer's baby are a dirty double pack with which he used to play chinese bezique it bored almayer but the old seaman delighted in it considering it a remarkable product of chinese genius the atmosphere of the terrible final chapters is set against the picture of a room in which mrs willems is waiting for her abominable husband bits of white stuff rags yellow pink blue rags limp brilliant and soiled, trailed on the floor, lay on the desk, amongst the sombre covers of books, soiled, greasy, but stiff-backed in virtue, perhaps of their European origin. The biggest set of bookshelves was partly hidden by a petticoat, the waistband of which was caught upon the back of a slender book, pulled a little out of the row so as to make an improvised clothes peg. The folding canvas bedstead stood anyhow parallel to no wall as if it had been in the process of transportation to some remote place dropped casually there by tired bearers and on the tumbled blanket that lay in a disordered heap on its edge joanna sat through the half-open shutter a ray of sunlight a ray merciless and crude came into the room beat in the early morning upon the safe in the far-off corner then travelling against the sun cut at midday the big desk in two with its solid and clean-edged brilliance with its hot brilliance in which a swarm of flies hovered in dancing flight over some dirty plate forgotten there amongst yellow papers for many a day and this room is set in the very heart of the forests the forests unattainable enigmatical forever beyond reach like the stars of heaven and as indifferent. Had I space, I could multiply from every novel and tale examples of this creation of atmosphere by the juxtaposition of the lyrical and the realistic, the lyrical pulse beating through realistic detail and transforming it. I will, however, select one book, a supreme example of this effect. What I say about Nostromo may be proved from any other work of Conrad's the theme of nostromo is the domination of the silver of the sualco mine over the bodies and souls of the human beings who live near it the light of the silver shines over the book it is typified by the white head of higuerota rising majestically above the blue conrad then in choosing his theme has selected the most romantic possible the spirit of silver treasure luring men on desperately to adventure and to death his atmosphere therefore is in its highest lights romantic even until that last vision of all of the bright line of the horizon overhung by a big white cloud shining like a mass of solid silver sulaco burns with colour we can see as though we had been there yesterday those streets with the coaches great family arcs swayed on high leathern springs full of pretty powdered faces in which the eyes look intensely alive and black the houses in the early sunshine delicate primrose pale pink pale blue or after dark from mrs gould's balcony towards the plaza end of the street the glowing coals in the hazieros of the market women cooking their evening meal glowed red along the edge of the pavement a man appeared without a sound in the light of a street lamp showing the coloured inverted triangle of his broidered poncho square on his shoulders hanging to a point below his knees From the harbour end of the calle a horseman walked his soft stepping mount, gleaming silver-grey, abreast each lamp under the dark shape of the rider. Later there is that sinister glimpse of the plaza where patrol of cavalry rode round and round without penetrating into the street, which resounded with shouts and the strumming of guitars issuing from the open doors of pulperillas, and above the roofs, next to the perpendicular lines of the cathedral towers, the snowy curve of Higuerota blocked a large space of darkening blue sky before the windows of the Intendencia in its final created beauty sulaco is as romantic as coloured as one of those cloud-topped many-towered towns under whose gates we watch grimm's princes and princesses passing but the detail of it is built with careful realism demanded by the architecture of manchester or birmingham we wonder as sulaco grows familiar to us as we realize its cathedral its squares and streets and houses its slums its wharves its sea its hills and forests why it is that other novelists have not created towns for us anthony trollope did indeed give us barchester but barchester is a shadow beside sulaco mr thomas hardy's wessex map is the most fascinating document in modern fiction with the possible exception of stevenson's chart in treasure island conrad without any map at all gives us a familiarity with a small town on the south american coast that far excels our knowledge of barsetshire wessex and john silver's treasure if any attentive reader of nostromo were put down in sulaco to-morrow he would feel as though he had returned to his native town the detail that provides this final picture is throughout the book incessant but never intruding we do not look back when the novel is finished to any especial moment of explanation or introduction we have been led quite unconsciously forward we are led at moments of the deepest drama through rooms and passages that are only remembered many hours later in retrospect there is for instance the aristocratic club that extended to strangers the large hospitality of the cool big rooms of its historic quarters in the front part of a house once a residence of a high official of the holy office the two wings shut up crumbled behind the nailed doors and what may be described as a grove of young orange-trees grown in the unpaved patio concealed the utter ruin of the back part facing the gate you turned in from the street as if entering a secluded orchard where you came upon the foot of a disjointed staircase guarded by a moss-stained effigy of some saintly bishop mitred and staffed and bearing the indignity of a broken nose meekly with his fine stone hands crossed on his breast the chocolate-coloured faces of servants with mops of black hair peeped at you from above the click of billiard-balls came to your ears and ascending the steps you would perhaps see in the first sala very stiff upon a straight-backed chair in a good light don Pepe, moving his long moustaches as he spelt his way at arm's length through an old santa marta newspaper his horse a strong-hearted but persevering black brute with a hammer-head you would have seen in the street dozing motionless under an immense saddle with its nose almost touching the curbstone of the sidewalk how perfectly recollected is that passage can we not hear the exclamation of some reader yes those orange trees it was just like that when i was there how convinced we are of conrad's unimpeachable veracity how like him are those remembered details the nailed doors the fine stone hands at arm's length and can we not sniff something of the author's impatience to let himself go and tell us more about that hammer-headed horse of whose adventures with don Pepe he must remember enough to fill a volume He is able, therefore, upon this foundation of a minute and scrupulous realism, to build as fantastic a building as he pleases, without fear of denying truth. He does not, in Nostromo, at any rate, choose to be fantastic, but he is romantic, and our final impression of the silver mine, and the town under its white shining shadow, is of something both as real and as beautiful as any vision of Keats or Shelley but with the colour we remember also the grim tragedy of the life that has been shown to us. Near to the cathedral and the little tinkering streets of the guitars were the last awful struggles of the unhappy Hirsch. We remember Nostromo riding with his silver buttons, catching the red flower flung to him out of the crowd, but we remember also his death and the agony of his defeated pride." sotillo the vainest and most sordid of bandits is no figure for a fairy tale here then is the secret of conrad's atmosphere he is the poet working through realism to the poetic vision of life that intention is at the heart of his work from the first line of almayer's folly to the last line of victory nostromo is not simply the history of certain lives that were concerned in a south american revolution It is that history, but it is also a vision, a statement of beauty that has no country nor period, and sets no barrier of immediate history or fable for its interpretation. When, however, we come finally to the philosophy that lies behind this creation of character and atmosphere, we perceive, beyond question, certain limitations. THE POET CHAPTER THREE as we have already seen, Conrad is of the firm and resolute conviction that life is too strong, too clever, and too remorseless for the sons of men. It is as though from some high window, looking down, he were able to watch some shore from whose security men were forever launching little cockle shell boats upon a limitless and angry sea he observes them as they advance with confidence with determination each with his own sure ambition of nailing victory to his mast he alone can see that the horizon is limitless he can see farther than they from his height he can follow their fortunes their brave struggles their fortitude to the very last he admires that courage the simplicity of that faith but his irony springs from his knowledge of the inevitable end There are, we may thankfully maintain, other possible views of life, and it is, surely, Conrad's harshest limitation that he should never be free from this certain obsession of the vanity of human struggle. So bound is he by this that he is driven to choose characters who will prove his faith. We can remember many fine and courageous characters of his creation, we can remember no single one who is not foredoomed to defeat jim wins indeed his victory but at the close and that's the end he passes away under a cloud inscrutable at heart forgotten unforgiven and excessively romantic he goes away from a living woman to celebrate his pitiless wedding with a shadowy ideal of conduct conrad's ironical smile that has watched with tenderness the history of jim's endeavours Proclaims at the last that that pursuit has been vain, as vain as Stein's butterflies, and for the rest, as Mr. Curl, in his study of Conrad, has admirably observed, every character is faced with the enemy for whom he is by character least fitted. Nostromo, whose heart's desire it is that his merits should be acclaimed before men, is devoured by the one dragon to whom human achievements are nothing lust of treasure macwhir the most unimaginative of men is opposed by the most tremendous of god's splendid terrors and although he saves his ship from the storm so blind is he to the meaning of the things that he has witnessed that he might as well have never been born captain Brierly, watching the degradation of a fellow-creature from a security that nothing it seems can threaten is himself caught by that very degradation the beast in the jungle is waiting ever ready to leap. The victim is always in his power. It comes from this philosophy of life that the qualities in the human soul that conrad most definitely admires are blind courage and obedience to duty. His men of brain, Marlowe, Descode, Stein, are melancholy and ironic. If you see far enough, you must see how hopeless the struggle is. THE ONLY WAY TO BE HONESTLY HAPPY IS TO HAVE NO IMAGINATION, AND BECAUSE CONRAD IS TENDER AT HEART, AND WOULD HAVE HIS CHARACTERS HAPPY, IF POSSIBLE, HE CHOOSES MEN WITHOUT IMAGINATION. THOSE ARE THE MEN OF THE SEA WHOM HE HAS KNOWN AND LOVED. THE MEN OF THE LAND SEE FARTHER THAN THE MEN OF THE SEA, AND MUST, THEREFORE, BE EITHER FOOLS OR KNAVES. TOWARDS CAPTAIN ANTHONY, TOWARDS CAPTAIN Lingard, HE EXTENDS HIS LOVE AND PITY. FOR VERLOCK, FOR Ossipan, FOR OLD DEBARL, HE HAS A DISGUST THAT IS BEYOND WORDS. FOR THE FINES AND THEIR BRETHREN HE HAS CONTEMPT. FOR TWO WOMEN OF THE LAND, WINNIE VERLOCK AND MRS Gould, HE RESERVES HIS LOVE, AND FOR THEM ALONE. BUT THEY HAVE IN THEIR HEARTS THE SIMPLICITY, THE HONESTY OF HIS OWN SEA CAPTAINS. THIS, THEN, IS QUITE SIMPLY HIS PHILOSOPHY. IT HAS NO VARIATION OR RELIEF he will not permit his characters to escape, he will not himself try to draw the soul of a man who is stronger than fate. His ironic melancholy does not, for an instant, hamper his interest, that is, as keen and acute as is the absorption of any collector of specimens, but at the end of it all, as with his own Stein, he says of him that he is preparing to leave all this, preparing to leave, while he waves his hand sadly at his butterflies utterly opposed is it from the philosophy of the one english writer whom in all other ways conrad most obviously resembles robert browning as philosophers they have no possible ground of communication save in the honesty that is common to both of them as artists both in their subjects and their treatment of their subjects they are in many ways of an amazing resemblance although the thorough investigation of that resemblance would need far more space than i can give it here browning's interest in life was derived on the novelist's side of him from his absorption in the affairs spiritual and physical of men and women on the poet's side in the question again spiritual and physical that arose from those affairs conrad has not browning's clear-eyed realization of the necessity of discovering the individual philosophy that belongs to every individual case he is too immediately enveloped in his one overwhelming melancholy analysis but he has exactly that eager passionate pursuit of romance a romance to be seized only through the most accurate and honest realism browning's realism was born of his excitement at the number and interest of his discoveries he chose for instance in sordello the most romantic of subjects and having made his choice found that there was such a world of realistic detail in the case that in his excitement he forgot that the rest of the world did not know quite as much as he did is not this exactly what we may say of nostromo mr chesterton has written of browning He substituted the street with the green blind for the faded garden of Watteau, and the blue spurt of a lighted match for the monotony of the evening star. Conrad has substituted for the lover serenading his mistress's window the passion of a middle-aged, faded woman for her idiot boy, or the elopement of the daughter of a fraudulent speculator with an elderly, taciturn sea-captain the characters upon whom robert browning lavishes his affection are precisely conrad's characters is not waring conrad's man and for the rest is not mr sludge own brother to verloc an old de Barrow. bishop bluegrim first cousin to the great personage in the secret agent captain anthony brother to Caponsacchi, mrs gould sister to pompilia it is not only that browning and conrad both investigate these characters with the same determination to extract the last word of truth from the matter not grimly but with a thrilling beat of the heart it is also that the worlds of these two poets are the same how deeply would nostromo Descard, gould monaham the Verlocs, flora de beryl macquere jim have interested browning surely conrad has witnessed the revelation of caliban of Child roland of james lee's wife of the figures in the arezzo tragedy even of that bishop who ordered his tomb at st praxed's church with a strange wonder as though he himself had assisted at these discoveries Finally, the ring in the book, with its multiplied witnesses, its statement as a case of life, its pursuit of beauty through truth, the simplicity of the characters of Pompilia, Capansachi, and the Pope, the last frantic appeal of Guido, the detail encrusted thick in the walls of that superb building, here we can see the highest pinnacle of that temple that has chance, lord jim nostromo amongst its other turrets buttresses and towers conrad is his own master he has imitated no one he has created as i have already said his own planet but the heights to which browning carried romantic realism showed the author of almayer's folly the signs of the road that he was to follow if as has often been said browning was as truly novelist as poet May we not now say with equal justice that Conrad is as truly poet as novelist? End of The Poet, Chapters 1, 2, and 3